organization uh, joined by my co-host Dr. Jaspreet Bal. Hey. Doing well? Yes, very well. It's a, it's a cold morning here in Toronto uh, where we record this show uh, and we, we hope uh, everyone's doing well here as we're in the middle of winter trying to break out as quickly as possible. We have a jam-packed show, as usual, um, a lot to talk about, a lot's always ongoing with the Sikh community. Uh, first and foremost, uh, there was a, a recent story that the Montreal Police Force uh, is, is having trouble reflecting the diversity of its city. Uh, gee, you know, just recently, uh, I wonder why. <laughs> yep. Uh, with, secondly, uh, there was a, a very interesting tweet uh, for those of you uh, in Brampton, which is about like half the sick population in Canada, uh, one of the great Punjabi cities of the world. Patrick Brown, who's the mayor of the city, uh, put out a tweet criticizing the Citizenship Amendment Act, which uh, garnered an interesting reaction. So we'll hop into that. Uh, are six an ethnic group? Big debate raging around there. Uh, the U.S. recently said yes. Uh, the U.K. has up to date said no. Uh, so there's a big conversation around this online uh, in, com- in communities across the uh, diaspora. Um, a lot to digest there. Uh, and last but not least, um, just record. Uh, did you did you see uh, the movie 1917? I haven't seen it, but I am now curious and I want to. Well, you know, they ruined it by including six. So we'll Fair talk right. about that. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, we'll be joined by Balpreet Singh later in the show. He's going to actually dive into a little bit about uh, the experience of Sikh minorities in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan, which has been in the news lately. Uh, and uh, we'll be joined by uh, Tejinder Singh the president of the World Sick Organization, to talk about uh, his experience with the organization and uh, his his term as the new president, uh, hailing from the beautiful city of Calgary, Alberta. Uh, with that, we'll see you after the jump. Montreal's police force should reflect the diversity of the city's population, city administrators have said, but a recent report revealed that the force is a long way away from the goal. What, what do you think might cause that situation, uh, just record? Uh, so a reminder to our listeners that Montreal is a wonderful city in the province of Quebec in Canada, which currently has Bill 21 in place, where anyone who is wearing overt symbols of faith is not allowed to serve in public roles. So it might present a bit of a challenge to have police officers from diverse communities. Right. And so a third of, the, a third of Montrealers are visible minorities. Um, which uh, you would hope would be reflected in the civil service and the police force. Uh, But the reality is, is 85% of the city's civil service and the police force are white, Uh, which is actually not that big of a surprise. And this is not just a Montreal problem. This is a problem uh, in in jurisdictions across the country. Uh, However, it's very acute in that city. Uh, The WSO has had a history of advocating uh, for more diversity in the Montreal Police Force and Civil Service. And uh, we did a press conference a couple of years ago with the local city councilor, that, and we did a lot of press around it. Um, 
But there's there's something to be said here when you are a province with Bill 21, which makes it impossible for a turban wearing or a job wearing or someone with any kind of religious symbol uh, from really working in the police force or a lot of positions in the civil service. How are you going to attract diversity? Rather, you're you're setting a pretty stern message to folks, uh, and you have a bit of a chilling effect with some of this legislation that spills over its, you know, and I say this word loosely, its intended uh, uh, purpose. Uh, it, it makes it more difficult than ever to uh, attract diversity in your ranks. We know from watchdogs and from reports and from studies that there is so much bias in policing. So it matters that you have representation in policing. Community policing models work better. Relationships in policing works better. Having communities that are well-funded serves to have less crime than to actually have increased police forces. And so it is it does make a huge difference when you have representation. I know um, just from lived experience as well as from the studies that if you're in Brampton and you have a police officer that shows up that speaks Punjabi, understands the context of families and community, uh, it works way better than if you have someone who doesn't understand that. This is a strength to police forces. But I didn't think it was really interesting that the um, police chief in Montreal said, and this is a quote from him, it's hard to catch up because in some cultures, it's not necessarily welcome or well seen to be a police officer. He said, having worked with some groups of minorities myself, they said, you know what, in my family, it's not great news that I'm a police officer. Um, I'm just going to offer this too, uh, respectfully to the police chief. I have never met a Punjabi family that wasn't excited when someone in their family became a police officer, even though I personally have, I'm very critical of policing. Um, from experience of being in the community, yeah, it's always a feather in someone's bug to have a police officer in the family. Yeah, look, I'm not as um, anti-police as uh, some folks or uh, yourself. Just for anti-police, critical. Of, uh, yes. You know, you you hate the police. You hate protection. <laughs> uh, no, so I, in all seriousness, I, I, it is a it is a matter of pride uh, for most folks, uh, at least in the Punjabi community, uh, to be part of the police force, especially in Canada. I I can understand in Punjab, yes. Uh, maybe uh, not as ma- as a matter of pride, uh, but in, in Canada or in the diaspora, at least, it's, it is seen as something to be celebrated. Uh, and the community has very publicly celebrated police officers of, of Sikh background. Um, and this kind of spills over uh, in other jurisdictions, right? This is not uniquely a Montreal problem. It, again, it's maybe more acute there. Uh, but even here in Peel region, uh, and for those that don't know, Peel region is uh, a municipal region that includes Mississauga, Brampton, Caledon, which probably houses a majority of the sick population in Ontario and maybe uh, over 50% of the sick population in Canada. The only other place that would come in any comparison would be uh, Surrey and the Lower Mainlands area, uh, in Canada at least. So in Peel Region, the Peel Regional Police Force had a, has a, had a big problem with diversity. You know, there was a diversity audit that happened uh, a couple of months ago, but we thought it was important to kind of bring up again in light of this conversation in Montreal. In a city as diverse as Brampton, uh, where actually 75% of the population, roughly speaking, is of uh, a minority, uh, so non-white population, you uh, you see a police force that is also not necessarily reflective of the community. But when they did this diversity audit, what they actually also found was within the police force itself, 
there seemed to be this lack of culture where, where there was a lack of support uh, for for those from a minority background. Um, there was a, a lack of reflection in leadership of the importance of diversity. And there was a lot of obvious frustration from those in the lower ranks of uh, some of the ceilings that they kind of had to break through uh, to achieve any level of success. Now, there was a recent Human Rights Tribunal case uh, where it was found that the police force had actually on the basis of race and, and with discrimination, stopped a senior police officer's further promotion who was of a Sikh or Punjabi background. So this is this is something that's important, I think, uh, across the country. Uh, it is it is something we must hold um, accountable uh, for those uh, you know police forces or civil services um, across the country, uh, because at the end of the day, if you want effective policing. If you want the community's trust, then you have to do a better job of doing community policing. And that's only possible if you have a service that reflects, again, the community that uh, you're protecting. There's, there's so much internal, there's so much racism internal to policing and um, shout outs to WSO, um, to ourselves. Uh, like we have done training with the police. We've had them at the Gordora. And I always use the example, like if someone needs to really understand it, um, if you need, and we have to like hire police officers for Nagarkeetans and stuff, you need someone whose eye can discern uh, a demonstration of Gatka from a Gordora fight using Karpans. And that keen discerning eye only comes if you understand culture. And if you have those people that understand what's going on, then they'll see little kids running at each other with Karpans and not feel like that's any danger or threat. And it can actually find pride in it. So really important that we continue to have I mean we're not going to get rid of policing anytime soon um, but to move to a more inclusive model that has more representation and better relationships at Patrick Brown Ontario and I'm quoting here received a few social media requests for a comment on the BJP Citizenship Amendment Act I don't support any law that discriminates against one's faith I was outspoken and clear in the Ontario legislature condemning Islamophobia. My convictions don't change when I travel abroad. Patrick Brown tweeted this out actually while he was in India on a foreign direct investment uh, trip, a trade mission on behalf of the city of Brampton, of which he is a mayor. Uh, and it's obvious, but I'll explain it anyways. The city of Brampton is the ninth largest city in Canada. It is home to the biggest population of Sikhs and Punjabis outside of Punjab or one of the biggest. It's probably pretty tight between Surrey and Brampton as far as uh, total population goes. So Patrick Brown tweeting this out in India turned into actually a pretty significant uh, news item, especially here locally and in India. And, and I do want to remind people, because um, the Citizenship Amendment Act, I don't want to throw around things that folks haven't heard before. So it was passed in India um, in December, and it provides pathways to citizenship for a whole bunch of religious minorities who are fleeing from other countries and coming into India. But um, Muslims specifically are not eligible for Indian citizenship from those countries. So it is discriminatory towards Muslims and yeah, from context, you can't be the mayor of Brampton without being on the ball with these topics. Well, look, Patrick Brown is is an interesting fellow. Um, 
not only is the mayor of Brampton, he, he was at one point the leader of the Conservative Party in Ontario and looked to be, well, all, all polls at the time indicating that he was going to be premier of Ontario. You know, some scandals broke. He had to step down, uh, but he, he's had a bit of a uh, fixing uh, his image and his trajectory here by becoming mayor of Brampton. And uh, he, for all intents and purposes, has done decently well job here in the city. And it's been really interesting to watch, like, like the rebranding of Patrick Brown. And he's not from Brampton and didn't know the demographics and the politics. And he now hosts, like I've seen him host jaw sessions. And yeah. it's been really interesting to see him find his footing in the community. Well, the redemption arc here is really interesting for like politicals like myself. Um, and yeah, Patrick Brown's not from Brampton, but he spent a considerable amount of time here he knew the community well and he he won the mural race at the end of the day that's said something um but this is not a politics show uh, well it is but um, we want to focus on what the the actual uh interesting point here is for uh six around the world and in canada patrick brown uh just kind of like highlight a bit of his history as far as it goes with the sick community and the indian community and the south asian community um, he was uh, someone that was always really close with uh, the Indian government uh, in India. Uh, he would be the kind of guy who would lead trade missions. He would be the guy who would uh, chair uh, the parliamentary groups uh, that would, uh, would work with and deal with India or those of Indian background. Uh, he likes to boast uh, proudly that he's been to India, I think, 15 to 20 times now at this point. Um, he gets meetings with Modi whenever he goes. He He's he's well known uh, in India and in the uh, Indian community here in Canada. But he's also someone who, during his time in the Ontario legislature, supported the genocide motion. Uh, he was someone who supported helmet exemptions for six uh, when they ride motorcycles. Uh, so he's been really ingrained into this, uh, the larger community conversation and dialogue. So when he criticized India while in India, it, it really caught a lot of people's attention because you haven't necessarily seen Patrick Brown do that in the past. Uh, and he took a very principled stand here. And he is someone who has taken principled stands on human rights issues in the past. Uh, he was the, the first big city mayor uh, to take a really public stance against Bill 21, which uh, ignited when it was a catalyst for other cities across the country to do so as well during the election. Uh, it made Bill 21 a real talking point uh, during the last federal election here in Canada. So it's not like he has he doesn't have uh, any track record or pedigree on these issues. It's just interesting that it was a criticism of India uh, so publicly. Mm. Um, I guess not to surprise anyone, the backlash was pretty harsh uh, from those that are pro-India and, and not so much just the pro-India folks, but like the pro-Hindu nationalist project. Um, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them the benefit of promotion here. Uh, so there's a there's a a magazine on online magazine a news article a news uh, site sorry uh, that is essentially a voice for the RSS in Canada who just started going at Patrick Brown and started like attacking Brampton as well, calling Brampton a little town calling Patrick Brown essentially a little man and the mayor of a little town. The um, mayor of Khalistan. I like that one. Well, that's the funniest part is because what happens next is we get a Tarek Fatah special where <laughs> Tarek Fatah, for those who don't know, is a um, uh, is a commentator uh, who gets mainstream coverage. Um, 
who takes really harsh positions against uh, Muslims, uh, pretty discriminatory stuff, he says, a really oddball character. Um, just before, I think you saw his video criticizing it, Patrick Brown. He I'm interested to hear your he thoughts. Has now own, he has his own YouTube show that's called What the Fatah. And it was, I don't know if anyone's familiar with InfoWars from the United States. So it was the brown version of InfoWars. Uh, yeah, he's definitely. <laughs> and and if, uh, if you remember from, I think we mentioned it a couple episodes ago, he has ties to the person who purchased the domain names that were um, the Indian... Uh, that were Canadian fake, sounding newspapers. Yeah, that were promoting Indian news. Yeah, promoting Indian fake news. Like it was a fake news yes. uh, system of like websites across Canada and the world. By the way, uh, as just and I were reporting this, we have uh, we have a bulletin board with Tarek's his picture in the middle and like strings of yarn <laughs> attached <laughs> to different things that he does. So Tarek Fatah is no friend of the community at all. Um, <laughs> but he starts attacking Patrick Brown too as like the mayor of Khalistan and someone's um, appeasing Khalistanis. And what I what I found actually really interesting about this whole thing was, like Patrick Brown is the furthest guy from a Khalistani supporter. Okay, um, like he's supportive of the community, obviously, but he's supportive of like every Indo community, like from the mm. the Tamil community to your mainstream Indian Hindu community to your Sikh community. He's just like he's just a Gora who like just wants to get along with everyone, right? Yes. So uh, the the reality is is he's like the furthest thing away from a Khalistani. But the moment he criticized India, even like it's, it's not, it was not even like a harsh criticism. He was labeled right away a Khalistani sympathizer, anti-India, anti-national, like these type of language and code words that they get thrown around by uh, in the Hindu nationalist movement here in Canada and elsewhere to right away discredit any type of criticism. Yeah, and, and I was uh, gonna I was gonna say that too. Like this is the um like ethno nationalism playbook. And also like Twitter is where they live. So it's not necessarily an accurate representation of what the general response in India is to Patrick Brown, but this is what they do. And if anything, I took it with humor when I saw it, but my heart does go out to him. <laughs> Oh yeah, for sure. And like, I, I know Patrick Brown personally, uh, he like has, he, he works hard. He works harder than anyone else. Uh, and again, there's a track record of calling out human rights violations. Uh, and I just found the reaction, like the visceral reaction to someone who's been a, a strong ally of like Indian communities and Indo Canadian relations to immediately be called out as a Khalistani or as like an, an extremist sympathizer because he calls out a act that essentially everyone has been calling out from mm-hmm. the United Nations to mm-hmm. activists, human rights activists in India. Um, it, it's a really interesting kind of thing to watch. Um, and again, just another example of uh, how folks in India react to any kind of criticism or the Indian government reacts to any type of criticism uh, and, and take those criticisms with a lot, like a huge grain of salt. Uh, because it's it's not actually a sincere or constructive criticism at all. It's it's just nonsensical. Historic announcement: the 2020 United States Census will tally six as a separate ethnicity for the first time. This is. Um, this is big news. Like this is actually fairly interesting. I have my opinions on it, but I, I you cannot deny that this is this is pretty significant. It was considered a big win for um, the. I mean, even the United Six organization 
hailed the move as historic for six in the United States. This is something that it sounds like they wanted and something that they're celebrating. And this comes on the heels of uh, the United Kingdom going through a similar campaign uh, uh, but failing, uh, and uh, now they're in front of the courts and they're, they're challenging it. And it's part of this bigger conversation, but during the UK, uh, situation and then the U S uh, situation here about trying to get six as an ethnicity, there was a pretty big debate around this. And in the case of the United States, they essentially said six, um, have a distinct unified appearance. They have a distinct culture, a distinct language, written and oral, distinct food, a distinct history, and therefore fulfill the criteria of representation in the U.S. Census as a distinct ethnic group. So they they checked off the the necessary prerequisites to get this designation. And the U.K. it's it's still an ongoing conversation. It's a big debate. However, there, there's been a pretty significant, I think, internal debate on whether or not this is appropriate. Like, are, are six actually an ethnic group? Yeah, and this, this I, I teach um, the difference between race and ethnicity and culture. And this is specific to, like, the corporate trainings I do, as well as the students I teach at the college where I work. They are different things with overlapping categories. So <clears throat> I always say racially, I'm brown, ethnically, I am Punjabi and my cultures, I exist in multiple cultures and they include, yes, I exist in a Punjabi culture, but also in like a 90s fangirl culture. I also come from a first generation Canadian culture. Um, and so to me, I have and I my students write a whole paper on ethnicity for one of my classes. I wouldn't accept this as an answer for ethnicity. And I write academically in, about Sikhi, and I always differentiate um, culture and ethnicity. So I talk about the overlap of how being Punjabi informs being Sikh, but I say that, you know, there are Sikhs who are not Punjabi. Um, there are Sikhs that we have very little in common with in terms of um, ethnicity, and there are um, parts of being Sikh that just, uh, like, uh, are six from Pakistan have a different um, culture than six from Punjab, than six in the um, in Germany, than six in Canada. So it's really interesting to count six as an ethnic group. But I'm also curious about the value of actually being able to name um, how many six there are and some of the arguments for it was so it was a, it was a strategic move to label six as um, ethnicity to try and get real data on how many six are in the United States. And that could actually be useful. And it's how much are you willing to give up? And it doesn't seem like too great of a sacrifice to say that six are an ethnicity to be able to get some of those real numbers and then to be able to use those numbers to create change. When the Sikh Federation UK, which was which has been spearheading the census uh, advocacy in, in the United Kingdom, uh, when it was rejected and they kind of taken to front of the courts, one of their arguments was uh, essentially that like an ethnic tick box as opposed mm. to a religious tick box, tick box are used by decision makers in allocating resources and making decisions on the provisions of uh, public services. Uh, and so the argument is by having six as an ethnicity, 
you know, yes, we can assess uh, more accurately how many Sikhs there are in a country. Uh, in the UK example, I think it was something around 450,000 to 500,000 Sikhs who self-identify Sikh in the religious Sikhs box. So it's not like Sikhs don't exist on the census. Like they're there as a religious category. Mm. Um, my personal opinion on this is that the, the Sikh identity is not a ethnic identity. Right. Uh, the six, you know, we consider it as a nation. Uh, we consider ourselves as a people, but it's not an ethnicity. Uh, it's a religion or it's a it's yeah. a faith system. If we're going to be applying it to like the census kind of language. And if there's one criticism, uh, folks from outside of uh, Punjabi ethnicity have about uh, Sikhi and the Punjabi culture is that. They, it gets tend to be mixed with one another. And for for those that are sick but of non-Punjabi background, they always feel like they are almost like second-class citizens, that they're not part of the the general conversation around Sikhi. They're not considered uh, in the same way Punjabi Sikhs are. And the whole ethnic Sikh... I, uh, checkbox and identity has been argued to kind of just further cement that uh, and further uh, kind of just play to that uh, kind of feeling in the community where if you're Punjabi, you're sick, and if you're sick, you're Punjabi. Whereas, you know, Punjabi ethnicity is one completely different yeah. thing and the Sikh religion is a completely different thing. I think there's also something that we need to question. So by doing this, what is going to be gained and what are some of the unforeseen consequences? What's going to be lost? And I think states having data on people can work to our strength when we're trying to, then we can say things like there are this many six and we're not getting employed. We're not represented equally here. We're not, uh, we're being bullied too much. We're overrepresented here or in these populations. Those things are useful. Um, census data is also used for gerrymandering. It's also used for for, um, in the case of uh, India, just overt state violence. Um, and what is it going to do if, and I'm guessing with this, there's also going to be um, a campaign to urge people to check that box on the census and to identify as sex. What is it going to do to like cap migration or to, um, it can definitely be used in ways that we haven't thought through. Definitely going to be interesting to see how this experiment plays out in the U.S., uh, haven't really seen the same kind of drive for six as an ethnicity in Canada. Um, but it's only a matter of time before it pops its head here as well and, and becomes uh, an issue. Uh, and it'll be kind of interesting to see uh, where that goes. And it's nice that we have America as a guinea pig. Lawrence Fox gets a history lesson on sick troops who died for Britain in World War One. For those of you that are on Twitter or social media and spend a lot of time there, you may have noticed or you may have noticed folks talking about it, but six were trending in Britain. And it was in reaction to Lawrence Fox, a actor or some guy, some fellow in the mm -hmm. UK who made a comment on a uh, talk show that during the movie 1917, which takes place uh, in World War One. There's a scene where uh, the main protagonist of the story is speaking to or comes across um, a soldier of sick background. And Lawrence Fox essentially said that ruined the movie because mm -hmm. uh, 
Uh, be- because it, it kind of just ruined the flow of the movie. Why are we showing a sick person? It was a racist comment. And Lawrence Fox is a guy who's kind of been taking those kind of alt-right type uh, positions. And this is, this is one of those, from quoting from him, um, the oddness of the casting caused a very heightened awareness of the color of someone's skin. Well, it's like, poor guy, we apologize that you had to watch a brown guy in a movie <laughs> when you weren't expecting to. It's like, you know, I feel very sorry for you. You have to look uh, at them like, all the time. They're called our family. I, I, I know. I, I don't go to a movie to watch brown people. Like, where is the decency? There's no decency left in society. Make movies and, white again. Yeah, come on, guys. Uh, so, Lawrence Fox obviously got slammed because historically speaking, he was off the mark. Um, uh, Six played a huge role in World War One, World War Two, uh, but uh, he he rightfully was criticized for uh, quite a few comments he made. One was also on uh, the fact that institutional racism doesn't exist, there's diversity, things out of control, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So he also he said that um, there that the movie was like it was inst- it's institutional racism to force people of color into um, historical movies where they don't belong. And I can't come up with an intelligent response to this. I just want to say you're wrong. That's not how institutional racism works. Um, White people don't experience institutional racism. And this is not, I'm not angry about this. I actually find it funny. So like know that this is, because I know Lawrence Fox is a huge uh, subscriber to our podcast. He listens to us every week. Um, So this is not coming from a place of anger. This is just coming from um, like institutional racism is not racist against white people. You're wrong. Um, So we're talking about structures that are in place that are created by white people for white people to support white people. And within those structures, we can say like um, institutional racism is when brown folks who were present in World War One are underrepresented on screen. That's institutional racism. It doesn't work the other way to say that there isn't enough white representation on screen. Right. So that, that's one aspect of this debate. Uh, the other one was obviously the historical debate around the uh, kind of how sick soldiers who died during the wars are treated as a footnote in like military history yeah. or British history and not given their fair due. And uh, 1917, the actual movie was p- paying homage to the fact that six played an integral role. Uh, and it was uh, kind of a reaction to uh, the mistakes in the past where kind of six have been ignored. There's also another side to this where, you know, a lot of folks were using this opportunity to say like, look, we're, look, we're proud uh, Brits, we we fought and died for this country. Uh, the sacrifice of six May, the volunteer f- force of the Indian Army, uh, that uh, the British Indian Army that took part in and died on the, in, in the fields of Europe. That we can't lose sight that we were colonial subjects at the time. That mm-hmm. we can't mm-hmm. lose sight that this uh, we were pretty much used as a human shield, as 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 folks who kind of went out and and died. Uh, for a uh, a colonial master that treated troops with racism, that treated them like second class citizens, um, and there's there's examples of letters and a lot of actually folks that volunteered and fought in Europe. The six uh, or the Indian British Indian Army actually were integral to uh, the uh, revolution and the resistance movement back in India when they returned. So 
there's there's a larger history here to share. And that was one thing that really harped on um, was really harped on by some folks that let's not just use this as an example to share uh, the the sick uh, history intertwined with the British uh, history or British identity, that there is something else going on here uh, that also requires the same amount of introspection and uh, analysis. Yeah, Gerpan and I talked about that a couple episodes ago when the Don Cherry incident happened here and um, with the you people. And I think we had talked about this as like our presence in wars was complicated. Um, you like some people are not proud that we serve the crown. Some people are proud that we serve the crown. There is not a sick one sick narrative or one sick perspective on this. Um, but what is true is that we were there. And that uh, in terms of Remembrance Day in Canada, we can take a moment to honor that and that this is not something that was someone else's. Um, We were there and we have some connection and claim to that history. So, again, Lauren Fox, you're just wrong. Yeah, 110% wrong. We're now joined by Balpreet Singh, head legal counsel for the World Sick Organization. You've heard him on the podcast before giving us legal updates. We're going to be talking about something a little bit different today. Balpreet Singh is going to talk to us a little bit about Sikhs in different places in the world, especially Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the World Sick Organization has a unique link to Sikhs in Afghanistan. Do you want to start by talking about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, So... In 2014, December, we were messaged by six in uh, Helmand province in Afghanistan, reaching out for help, saying that their stores had been boycotted. Uh, there's calls for them to be boycotted and their kids can't go to school and they desperately needed help. So that actually started a process uh, by which we reached out to Manmeet Singh Pudler. And then uh, eventually they were uh, taken out of Afghanistan, out of Helmand province, uh, brought to India and about 15 families have now come to Canada as refugees and around 40 families are still waiting. Uh, but through that time, so over these past five and a half years or so, uh, we've learned quite a bit about six in Afghanistan. What is the challenge there? What are they escaping? What makes them refugees? So six in Afghanistan uh, were a very large community in the 80s. You had up to 200,000 Sikhs and Hindus uh, living in Afghanistan, and they were prosperous, had a lot of gurdwaras, had a lot of businesses, uh, were looked as uh, a a rich community, like uh, money lenders, etc. But with the advent of the Taliban and the just uncertainty and uh, conflict in Afghanistan, uh, they started to flee. So pretty much at this point, only those six are left in Afghanistan that don't have the means of escaping or uh, simply just uh, can't get out now. Uh, and they are desperate to get out. Not, I think there's very few six in Afghanistan that would say that they want to stay in that country anymore. And the numbers around less than a thousand at this point. For these folks that are um, in this situation and going to different places, and Jaskar and I were talking on this podcast about um, ethnicity and six have just been qualified as an ethnicity in the United States. Ethnically, how do these folks identify? Because when you think of Sikh, you have a tendency to think Punjabi. Who are the Sikhs in Afghanistan? So it's a good question. Uh, there was an interview that came out a couple of days ago of six that had migrated or escaped Afghanistan and are now settled in Delhi. So what they were saying was that in Afghanistan, they call us Hindus. 
and we're not Hindus. But here in, in India, they call us Kablis. So we're not accepted here or there. So ethnically, these guys are, are Pashtuns. Um, they speak uh, uh, different languages uh, like Pashto and uh, Dari, uh, but they don't speak uh, Punjabi like natives. They speak differently. They have an accent. So uh, they're not native Punjabis, um, which makes it a very interesting dynamic. And that's actually resulted in Afghan Sikhs setting up their own Gurdwaras. So uh, you see in Delhi that they have their own uh, Gurdwaras like um, the Gurnanik Darbar, Guru Arjun Darbar. Even in the UK, in South Hall, uh, they have their own Gurdwara where they feel more comfortable, I guess, going. So it's an interesting situation. They have faced a lot of overt violence, um, some to the extent of like not being able to do siskar of six that have passed away and a lot of terrorism. What are some of the stories that have stuck with you? So there's a lot of violence that these guys have endured. Um, there's been assassinations. There was, of course, the suicide bombing of July 2018, in which all of the senior leaders of the Afghan Sikh community that were left in Afghanistan were blown up by a suicide bomber. But on a daily basis, uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of violence and a lot of uh, oppression that these Sikhs are facing. For example, they tell us that something as simple as going out to get milk that the people that sell them milk spit in their milk, um, that they get veg dirty vegetables being thrown at them when they go outside. Uh, one story that sort of stuck with me was uh, these guys don't go anywhere alone. They always travel in groups or at least in pairs. So there were a couple of six on a bus and they were traveling and the bus broke down. And some of the passengers blamed the sick passengers, saying that it's because of them that uh, God has cursed our bus and it's broken down. And they were almost attacked just because their bus broke down. So going anywhere is a challenge and you never know where you'll be attacked or where you'll have to face violence. Is there um, are the six that would have gone from Afghanistan to India, because that is uh, some of the journey. They do get long term visas to stay in India. Are they going to be impacted positively by the Citizenship Amendment Act? Are they included in the same act that excludes Muslims who are seeking Indian citizenship? Yeah. So any Sikh that or Hindu that arrived before December 31st, 2014 would now be able to get citizenship. So this has been welcomed by some uh, Sikhs in Afghanistan, and I can understand why. It doesn't change the fact that it's a discriminatory law and excluding Muslims is, is basically a violation of human rights. But uh, those that arrived before 2015 would be able to now apply for citizenship. But that, of course, leaves a very large community uh, that have arrived after 2014. And they are in the same precarious situation where they don't get any government supports. They can't legally work. Their kids are not going to school. Uh, they're not very happy there and and they don't want they don't see a future for themselves in India. It was a really moving moment when the refugee families that the WSO had helped bring here finally arrived. And there was a lot of coverage of that. There's still a lot of work that still needs to be done. What do you think the responsibility is of Sikhs in Canada or anywhere else outside of Afghanistan? I can't stress enough that the situation with respect to the Afghan Sikhs in Canada is not resolved in any way, shape or form. There's only 15 families that have arrived. And I'm just afraid that because of that photo op and because there was that celebration, that some people are thinking that that situation is done. There's 40 families still waiting to come. 
and there's no idea when they'll be able to have their files processed. There's a bunch of families that their files were returned. So their applications were submitted for refugee status and they were now returned because there wasn't enough money, uh, because the money goes up that you have to deposit every year. Uh, and on top of that, I'm getting very regular messages from the six left in Afghanistan saying, what about us? Uh, I'll give you one last example. The six in, in Ghazni. So there's two communities left in uh, Afghanistan that still have six. One is Kabul and the other is Ghazni. Ghazni had uh, a very vibrant Sikh population. Pai Nandalal uh, was from Ghazni, of course. There are four Gurdwaras there, two of them historic, two of them uh, just Singh Sabhas. Just this week, they sent four Saroops to India saying that they're not safe in India, uh, in Afghanistan anymore, and therefore they've taken the Saroops and brought them now to India. And I've been told that there's only 70 to 75 Sikhs left in Ghazni. And this used to be a vibrant population, a vibrant community, and it's a historical reality that in our lifetimes, we're going to see Afghanistan essentially emptied of Sikhs, and, and that's a real tragedy. But it's our responsibility now to make sure that they're settled properly. They're members of our community, and uh, we as Canadian Sikhs have a very special uh, responsibility. So we're going to have to really step up. There's a lot of history of Sikhs in Afghanistan, um, as well as historic Gurdwari there. There's a lot of similar threads to the experience of being a Sikh in Pakistan. Um, we have a lot of connection. And it was another, again, another one of those we saw um, this last year, a lot of positive media around being able to reconnect with Pakistan. What would you say to that, to, to build more depth to an understanding of what Sikhs are experiencing in Pakistan? So the situation with Sikhs in Pakistan is that it's very highly politicized. Uh, Sikhs are being used as a pawn uh, in a situation where India and Pakistan are at loggerheads. So Sikhs are a political tool that's in the middle. And literally in the middle because Punjab, where Sikhs reside, is, is between the two countries. Uh, so to get an accurate assessment of the situation is very difficult. So there's no doubt with the Kartarpur corridor opening that there's a lot of goodwill towards uh, Pakistan and the Pakistan government. The number of Sikhs traveling to Pakistan has gone up dramatically, and that brings tourism do dollars to Pakistan. And Pakistan is now opening up gurdwaras and sites that have not been open uh, for the past 70 years. For example, uh, the Samad of uh, Chart Singh, uh, Maha Singh, these are historical sites that were being used by land mafias, by uh, people just storing like paint and stuff. And now these are being emptied. So you have Gurdwaras and historical sites that are being opened. But the reality on the ground is this, that six that live there uh, are facing a lot of difficulties. Uh, so you are seeing six being attacked. And we, of course, saw uh, in, in the last month that uh, surrounding of Nankarna Sahib and stones being thrown. So that was actually a shock to a lot of six because it's kind of like this understood narrative that Sikhs in Pakistan are VIPs and welcomed. And a lot of Sikhs were very surprised that how can this happen, that Nankarna Sahib was surrounded and these very vicious uh, things were said and stones were thrown. It sounds like there is um, a, a bit of, I don't know what you want to call it, classism, but that um, NRI Sikhs or Sikhs who are going in through the Kartapur corridor are treated better than Sikhs actually living on the ground in Pakistan. And it's, it does seem like they are treated like second class citizens. Um, and again, a very similar experience to that Afghanistan. There's a lot of overt violence that they experience on the ground there. Yeah. So 
as a Sikh who's visiting from an outside country, your experience is very different than a Sikh that lives there on a permanent basis. But the problem is that the Sikhs that live there on a permanent basis uh, feel compelled to celebrate their nationalism, to overtly show it so that they're safe. And that's kind of sad that to, to preserve their safety, they have to become uber Pakistanis and, and wave flags and even hang flags from Gurdwaras. I mean, if I saw a Canadian flag or an Indian flag hanging from a Gurdwara, I would be offended. But it's true that on uh, the Independence Day of Pakistan, I've seen pictures of uh, Pakistani flags being hung from Gurdwaras. So, yeah, it's another one of those things where, like, um, we just have to broaden our idea to, uh, of ethnicity to understand that uh, while there would be a lot we have in common with the folks that are on the ground there, for some Pakistani Sikhs, it, the ideas of nationalism, language, all of that would be different. Yeah. So, I mean, it's all complicated by the fact that India uses any news out of Pakistan to try and turn Sikhs against Pakistan. So there was some old site that was torn down in Kartarpur, and the Indian media called it Guru Nanak's Palace. And no one had heard of this thing before, but the average Sikh who's not really familiar with, you know, the historic sites in Pakistan was like, oh my God, in Pakistan, the historical palace of Guru Nanak has been torn down. Well, nothing like this ever existed. Um, you have certain Sikh uh, political leaders who are fleeing Pakistan and coming to India. They have their own reasons for doing so. Some of them claim that there's uh, serious persecution. Others seem to be fleeing from uh, law, from the law, like legal cases. But India is projecting all of it as saying Pakistan is intolerant towards its minorities, and therefore the Citizenship Amendment Act is necessary. So six are in the middle, and finding out the truth, like I said, is very, very difficult. To that point, if you are critically consuming or trying to critically critically consume information about what's happening in Pakistan. How do you discern when you're getting the party line or you're getting something from the state and what's actually happening? Is there a way to access the voices and experiences of those people? Social media is very, very active and it's hard to like, you know, siphon through all of the all the information. But that's usually where you can get a better idea of what's actually happened. Um, there was this Hindu leader who came to India and claimed that he was fleeing persecution. And when he flew, when he came to India, he's had, he had a dastar and a beard, but his name was a Hindu name. And when you sort of went through the information, it turned out that he was accused of killing another Sikh political leader, and it seems that he'd fled the law. So you're kind of just trying to sort through the information, trying to get the reality of it. Um, I'll give you another example that was highly emotional, very volatile. The daughter of a Granthi in Nankarna Saab, uh, declared that she became a Muslim and married a, a Muslim young man. So her family claimed that she'd been forcibly converted and kidnapped. She and the Muslim boy's family are saying that, no, she legitimately converted to Islam and doesn't want to go back to her family. Trying to figure out what the reality of that situation is very, very difficult. Like she clearly has not returned to her family. Is it because she's fearful and there's pressure or did she genuinely get into a relationship with this Muslim guy and convert to Islam? Very hard to figure out. 
But there were so many layers to that. I was wondering too, like, what was there a consent? What there was so much patriarchy, the idea that daughters are the property of their families. There's so much danger. Um, did it act like who's actually telling the right story? And then the story was also used by the media to keep pitting people against each other. Absolutely. So there's no doubt that Hindu girls and some Sikh girls have been kidnapped in Pakistan, forcibly converted to Islam. And there was this really compelling article by one of these girls. And she said that when I was asked uh, whether I wanted to go back to my family, I said no, because I was told that if I did, my family would be in danger. So you you can't figure out what the reality is uh, because you just don't know what's happening in their minds, what pressure they're facing. Very difficult. Any final thoughts or comments? Because these are conversations that we have to tread carefully. What do you want people to do as they continue to read these stories and learn about what's going on? So there's no doubt that six in Afghanistan and Pakistan face very challenging situations. There's a lot of intolerance and they're, they're not seen as equal citizens. It's fairly clear. That having been said, the situation in India is no better. Um, I mean, you have Gurdwaras like the Mangu Martin, Orissa, Jagannath Puri that was torn down. You have uh, a Sikh who was attacked there because he spoke out about these things. You have Sikh houses that have been torn down in Madhya Pradesh uh, of Sikhs that have lived there for, for decades. So, I mean, India is no better. And I think we have to be very discerning when it comes to propaganda. And we have to make sure that we're not pawns in in political wars between uh, superpowers. So very careful, but no doubt that because we're a stateless people, um, our our rights are not protected and and we face a lot of challenges, no doubt. Definitely think that's something that six face, no matter where they are, whether they're inside of India, in other countries or in the diaspora. Thank you so much for sharing all of those stories and for doing all of the legal work that you do. Thank you. Jaskaran Singh said that he elbowed his way back into the podcast, but myself, Girpakor, is back. And today I have the honor of interviewing the WSO's new president, Dejinder Singh. He's originally from Calgary, has been involved with the organization for many years. So we thought, why not introduce him to all of you? So Dejinder Singh, welcome to your first ever Ask Canadian Six podcast episode. Thank you very much. So I just thought it would be kind of cool to give our listeners a little bit of information about you. Can you tell me how you got involved with the WSO? Uh, Well, that takes us back to about, I think, 2008. I witnessed a fatal car accident and uh, I got subpoenaed by the Crown Prosecutor uh, to, as a witness, when I went to the court center, um, that's when the Calgary Court Center was just opened. It was a few months old, and they had airport-style security. And long story short, I wasn't allowed to go in because of my kirpan. And it was the WSO who uh, was the only organization that uh, supported me. And uh, through WSO's help, uh, we were able to get a kirpan accommodation policy in all Alberta courtrooms. And then uh, shortly after, BC followed and um, so it was uh, it was my chance to sort of get involved and see the inner workings of the WSO. Uh, I, I got to also meet uh, Balpri Singh uh, when he joined the WSO as well too. I think about 2009, and uh, you know just uh, saw the work that the organization 
does and I officially joined the board as the vice president of Alberta in about 2010 and uh, I've been on the board since and then uh, I'm humbled to be selected as the president here in our last uh, AGM in uh, October of 2019. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you've been president since October and knowing that you have a two-year term how has your first few months been? They've been busy, to say the least. Uh, you know, you really get uh, you really got to take some time and uh, get to know everybody. We have a big board. We have 31 member board of director across Canada. Uh, a lot of supporters, um, and you know, just taking that time to be able to uh, get to know everybody on a personal level uh, and understand all the little intricacies. Uh, Mukbir Singh has been a big help uh, you know, and has left the organization in uh, in very good state. And uh, yeah, so the first few months have been just been very busy, but very excited uh, uh, with uh, the future coming. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, if the last few months say anything, I'm also very excited to see uh, where you lead us to. What do you wish to accomplish in your presidency? Who? Um, I know that's a tough one, eh? I, I, it is. It is for sure. You know, I, I guess my biggest wish um, is to really grow the organization. So the, the World Sick Organization of Canada is really, uh, we're the only national organization in Canada to take on sick issues. Uh, you know, uh, hopefully everyone that's listening follows us on social media. And if you don't, uh, please do. Uh, the handle is at WorldSickOrg. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, we also have LinkedIn. Um, but if you follow us on social media, you'll see that uh, in December, we celebrated our 35th anniversary and we did a 35-year campaign just highlighting some of the work that WSO has done over the past 35 years. Uh, and when you read through it, it's, it's, um, it's inspiring. You know, the work that WSO has done uh, and one of the things that I, I can confidently say is the life as we know it here as sick Canadian six, it would be completely different if uh, the World Sick Organization never existed. The World Sick Organization has a very big hand at uh, all the, I'll, I'll call it the sock that we enjoy as six here today in terms of being able to freely wear the star, um, and, you know, to be able to freely wear our Kirpan. Uh Throughout Canada, there's, you know, there's been so much impact the WSO has had on our day-to-day life. Uh, you know, kids can play soccer, they can join karate. Um, again, it's all because of WSO. The uh, six can, uh, you know, wear the stars as RCMP officers. We had, uh, we played a part with uh, Buldez and Tillo's case. Um, mm-hmm. We helped refugees. Uh, there's just there's so many um, stories, and so you know when I when I look at what's in store for the next couple of years, what I would like to, for us to do uh, and be is is uh, an organization that can really take that next step. And so my biggest wish is to grow the organization. Right now we have one employees, and we soon to be two, where we'll be hiring an executive director, but when you look at other organizations that do similar work to us, uh, the NCCM, the National Canadian Council of Muslims, you know, they have dozens of employees. 
Um, CJA, the, the, the National Jewish uh, Organization, they have over 30 employees. Um, and when you look at the, the output, you know, it's amazing that the, the work that we do is, you know, at par with what those organizations do with dozens and dozens of employees. So mm-hmm. what my ultimate goal would be is, you know, getting the organization on a stable financial footing uh, mm-hmm. and being able to grow it by being able to have full-time employees in, you know, cities throughout Canada that are working on sick issues full-time. So, you know, being able to go out on interfaith events, uh, meet with all three levels of government, their staffers, um, be part of, you know, meet with think tanks, with uh, media rooms. There's so much stuff that right now we really don't have a sick voice. Um, the 31-member WSO board, you know, we're all volunteers. No one, None of us get paid. Uh, every, everywhere we go, you know, we spend our own money. And, you know, we all we all work. And so sometimes, you know, we have to be able to react very quickly if uh, something breaks in terms of a news story or, um, you know, we get a call from a media and they're looking for a quote. And, um, you know, we got to take time out of our, our day at work uh, to try to, uh, to arrange all that. And, you know, the goal would be is that we have employees already in primed um, and we have, we're able to react and be proactive as well too. Mm-hmm. Um, and having, no, sure. having said that is also one thing I, I want to let everyone know is I think there's a common misconception that the World Sick Organization is financially um, stable. Like we have a lot of supporters and that are paying us tens of millions of dollars. And that's not the case. I wish. We are a very <laughs> small, uh, humbled organization. Uh, that relies solely on uh, supporters like yourself who are listening to this podcast for your donations. And so we, we're looking to be able to, um, we'll be launching a This One program uh, campaign here within the next couple of months, hopefully, uh, where we're going to be, you know, really uh, asking for everyone's help and uh, help pitching in so that we can make this dream come true and have the sick voice being present at all tables. Mm-hmm. So if you like what you're hearing, if you like this podcast, please support us. <laughs> and yes, thinking more broadly about... Yes, we would really appreciate that. Um, but when you think about the sick community at large, what do you think is the biggest challenge we will face in the next five to ten years? Uh, I think there's two. So... I, I think first and foremost is uh, uh, the international students that we have coming in. You know, we mm-hmm. have um, we have well over 100,000 international students coming from Punjab that identify as six. And, you know, their, their living conditions and um, their support mechanisms just really don't exist. And we're hearing a lot of really terrible situations happening across the country. And, uh, you know, the biggest thing I feel we're going to run into is when these, when their um, educational term comes up, a lot of these kids, their parents have sold off their land uh, and have invested, sold off everything so that they can invest in their child's future with the hope that they're going to get a PR at the end of this. And the way the government has everything set up right now, it's going to be really tough almost impossible for these guys to be able to get their prs and so you know what's going to happen um you know are we going to start seeing 
people starting to stay here illegally because, you know, they have nothing to do when they go back because their family has sold everything or what are we going to see? We don't not really know. And we got to, as a community, we need to come together and we need to solve this problem collectively. And we got to work with all governments uh, and colleges and everybody here uh, to, to find some solutions. I feel it's going to be a, a big problem here and it's going to keep getting worse and, unless we do something about it today. Mm-hmm. And then I think this, the second uh, issue I feel is Bill 21. You know, I don't feel, I feel that our community just doesn't realize how big and impactful this law is. You know, I think uh, most of our population lives in Ontario and British Columbia. And sometimes we really don't think that, hey, you know, we always say that, oh, this is happening in Quebec and Quebec's, you know, different and so on and so forth. But this is a very slippery slope. Um, if this law is continues, uh, doesn't get overturned, um, it's almost that all the victories we've had up to date, uh, they become very shaky. Um, you know, we've had some very big precedent setting cases like the Multani case that uh, that went to the Supreme Court and, and recognized that Kirpan is allowed, you know, in schools. And we've been able to use that sort of as a precedent setting case uh, to allow Kirpans in many different venues, including, you know, NHL stadiums at the Olympics and workplaces. Uh, you know, WSO also major victory was being able to get the Kirpan on flights uh, as well, too. Mm-hmm. But when you have Bill 21, it, uh, um, you know, you can start to potentially use this notwithstanding clause. And, you know, when we're looking at governments throughout the world, um, they're becoming more and more, um, uh, you know, I'll say right wing in the sense that um, governments are becoming more extremist in their views. So like you have France that has the full head covering ban. Uh, you guys, you have, you know, our neighbors to the South have uh, Donald Trump, who's who said some outrageous things over his term. Um, and you never know what you're you're going to get, you know, uh, today, you know, uh, we think that the future is going to continue to be like it is, but you never know what kind of leader uh, Canada might have uh, down the road. And so this Bill 21 is a, is a big issue and we really need to collectively as a community recognize how big this is um, and speak up, you know, talk to our MPs. Uh, we all three political, um, federal parties have really just become silent on this and shameful. You know, mm-hmm. if this bill was targeting um, any other community, you know, let's just say the LGBTQ community, would we have the same level of silence? Um, you know, that's that's for up for debate. But uh, we really need to start pushing all of our um, federal leaders, our provincial leaders, everybody. Um, you know, even if you're working at a at a national company, you know, try talking to the executives if they're investing in Quebec. Let's uh, let's have those conversations. Do we want really want to be supporting a government out there that's just clearly discriminating against Muslims, Sikhs, Jews? Uh, we've become effectively second-class citizens, uh, citizens out there. And so, uh, you know, hopefully the community can wake up and, and understand the gravity of the situation. Yeah. And, you know, the public opinion research across the country shows that many Canadians in other provinces would support similar legislation like that in their in their local provinces. And that to me is really scary because I don't know what we would do if other provinces were to pass similar legislation. 
So yeah, isn't that I scary? Think it, I think uh, I think it was like Saskatchewan and Manitoba. I think it was over fifty percent said that they would support a similar bill like that in their province. And you know, it's crazy. Like, uh, what what has um, what has invoked this? Like, why is this so popular? Uh, and you know, we have all these people. This is uh, Quebecers want this. You know, we want to do with what the majority says. Well, the majority of people also don't want to pay taxes. So, you know, the governments aren't always there to listen to the majority. And it, I, feel, I frankly feel it's BS where, they, you know, they say that the Quebecers want this and so they don't want to get involved. There's a lot of things that people want that governments don't enact. Uh, so, you know, that whole premise is just a bunch of bull. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in learning more about Bill 21 or getting involved on the international student front, the WSO is doing some really great work surrounding this. Um, so please get in touch with uh, some, a representative of the organization and we'd be happy to help. We need all the help that we can get, whether it be via donations, via your time, we would be happy to have you. The other thing, any last words for our listeners? Um, yeah, like Gerpa said, you know, if, uh, anything comes up, please reach out. Um, we, uh, we recently actually just had our, uh, 2020 strategy session in Vancouver last weekend. Very excited. We, um, we had all of our board directors fly down to Vancouver. We were able to spend a day and brainstorm of what our strategy is for this year and how we're going to execute it. Uh, we got a really young, dynamic, brilliant board, um, uh, the future looks really bright and, you know, I, I hope as listeners, uh, you will be able to help with uh, financially that we can help grow this organization to really be the forefront um, for the community to be able to raise our voices at whatever table we need to. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to your continued support. And with that, that draws this segment to a close. Thanks so much for listening. Listening. Why Gujika Kalsa? Why Gujika? Welcome on the show, Stephen Putowal, who is a historian and the man behind the Indus Media Foundation. For those who don't know, uh, Indus Media Foundation does incredible work in covering the history of the Punjabi diaspora here in Canada. Stephen hails from the British Columbia, and he's most well known for his book Duty, Honor, and Ijit, which looks at the history of six in World War One. Stephen, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Uh, and I guess we can start off with, you know, where were you when uh, the news broke of Lawrence Fox's incredibly racist comments? Uh, and, and what was your, just your first reaction? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, a number of our UK followers, uh, followers of the Indus Media Foundation page, they'd actually directly messaged me to let me know about the comments that had just appeared in a, a UK uh, tabloid. Uh, that was back on Monday. At that point, I hadn't the slightest idea who Lawrence Fox was, so my immediate reaction was of surprise. Why was that press over there giving this guy so much attention? I think a lot of folks would agree with you that surprise uh, is probably the right word to describe everyone's reaction to Lawrence Fox's comments and the mainstream play that it got. Because 1917 was a, a commercial and a critical hit. Uh, it is uh, received accolades across the board, uh, and what what was a very uh, nice and appreciated gesture was the appearance of a Sikh soldier in this film, uh, because uh, the Sikh sacrifice and the sacrifice of uh, folks from across South Asia in in the world wars is often forgotten or kind of pushed to the margins of history. 
So Lawrence Fox puts this comment uh, out. Uh, you obviously see it, and, and you, alongside uh, Pradeep Nagra from the Sikh Heritage Museum, uh, put out a, an open letter uh, for his uh, for Lawrence Fox's recent comments. You know what pushed you to do that? Well, as I dug into Mr. Fox's background, it became crystal clear exactly who he was and what he stood for, and my surprise quickly gave way to anger and disappointment. His, his Twitter timeline leaves little to the imagination. Here was a guy that had all the benefits of a private school education, manipulating the populist masses. In the case of the 1917 movie, he was using the race car to support white privilege. I was born in the UK and one of the constant refrains we heard while growing up was, well, we didn't fight in two world wars for you lot to come over here and take our jobs. What Sam Mendes did by including the Sikh in the, in the film was to break that myth, albeit in a small way. But that was enough for the racists who want to maintain that it was all white on the Western Front. It's their hallowed ground. The idea of brown men with turbans saving European lives was sacrilege. So the cunning Mr. Fox took up their charge and proceeded to discredit the appearance of the Sikh by vilifying Mendes as a director. After getting the UK tabloid article, I discussed what was going on with Pardeep Nagra, the executive director of the Sikh Heritage Museum, and we immediately decided to draft the letter because along with the suggestion the Sikh character didn't belong in the film was the most incredible accusation that it was a case of enforced diversity. Mr Fox framed that as institutionalised racism against whites. At that point, enough was enough. We decided we need to stand up and offer a rebuttal. We needed to let Mr. Fox know who did what for whom and that it was us that had suffered institutionalized racism as a form of oppression and marginalization for decades. So your open letter was one of many public reactions to Lawrence Fox's comments. And in the end, six was sick. Uh, the, the the word sick was trending uh, in the UK. It was uh, picking up steam here in Canada and elsewhere. Why do you think uh, this incident garnered uh, so much attention? And, and what does it mean for uh, sick history and building up greater awareness of sick history uh, in, in Canada? The Fox story garnered a lot of attention because when the rebuttals came in from far and wide, it soon became evident that Mr. Fox's claims were preposterous. Not only was there more than one Sikh in Europe in 1917, but there were tens of thousands without whom the Allied victories in World War I and World War II could not have been won. For many people following this story, that came as a surprise. For many of Fox's followers, it would have come as a shock. In such a scenario, people are obviously compelled to learn more, and that's why it was vital to counteract the whitewash narrative that Mr. Fox was suggesting. The Fox story was an invitation to tell the other side of the story, our story, that had been systematically and institutionally erased. In the end, many more people today are a lot more aware that the Sikhs were, an inter were integral to two world wars, wars that shaped not only the UK but Canada too, and therefore ultimately Sikhs can frame their heritage as a shared history with Western countries as a vital part of those nation-building stories that populists want to claim as their own. All Indians were Brits until 1947, so were Canadians. The World War One and World War II stories are not only theirs but ours and with that recognition should come the laurels for having sacrificed so much. This is why it's an imperative that an inclusive history be told in Canadian classrooms. Last year on the announcement of Sikh Heritage Month we released an inclusive story of World War One featuring the Sikhs in a youth publication. The Duty, Honour and Is a book is now a tool in classrooms across the Lower Mainland in BC. It's actually a tool that people that want to lift uh, the Eurocentric lens on histories, on socials, curriculums. It's actually becoming very popular. 
and we'd like to see it, uh, you know, embraced across across the country. Um, awareness of this history has, in in BC, already impacted many of our youth. Uh, a lot of them are attesting to finding a new sense of belonging to Canada and pride in their culture and uh, and religion. So I, I guess we can conclude with this final question: What are what are the key takeaways of this whole incident for you? What would what would you like us to kind of take away from all of this? Incidents like these highlight that we all have a responsibility and obligation to stand up and fight against racism and bigotry. Religious and cultural organizations honor the sacrifices and bravery of our soldiers who made the ultimate sacrifice. Traditionally, though, this has not been the case. So we have a responsibility to encourage and inspire pride and identity and knowledge of these sacrifices, not only to our communities, but the mainstream too. Otherwise, our detractors will write our history for us. One of the key challenges visible minorities face going forward, whether in the UK or Canada, is the establishment of truer, true allies in this fight to establish equity. For most people in the mainstream, that the white privileged status quo, it favours them. And in that case, it's human nature not to rock the boat. We need allies to step up. And by stepping up ourselves to dignify our own history, heritage and character, it makes it a little easier for others to come out of the woodwork. If we didn't have the backlash against Mr. Fox, I'm sure a lot of people would have found credence in his remarks. I feel some people are reluctant to step out on a limb to defend a community that was too ignorant or apathetic to defend themselves. In that case, Mr. Fox would have got away with turning back the clock. By discrediting Mr. Fox, we've made efforts to erase seat contributions to their respective countries in the West that much harder. Thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time out to talk to us here at the Ask Canadian Six the podcast. Uh, your insights are valuable as always. And that's it for this month's Ask Canadian Six the podcast. Just record as always. It's a pleasure having you on. Sure. Uh, well, that was not enthusiastic. Sure. Like. It's so good to be on. It's still early. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, look, you can catch us again next month. Uh, we are always open to suggestions. You can you can listen to this podcast on pretty much every major podcast platform from Apple to Google to Spotify to Anchor uh, to SoundCloud. Uh, we're everywhere. Uh, please uh, feel free to leave a review, actually. Uh, that would be nice. Five stars, please. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we all re- and like, we'll, we'll, know, we'll know what content you're interested in and what content you want us to be talking about. Exactly. Feel free to uh, DM us at the World Sick uh, Twitter account uh, with uh, suggestions uh, for topics. We're always interested to see what people across Canada and, and the diaspora are interested in. Uh, and we're more than happy to uh, discuss stuff that you think is interesting. Uh, if there's interviews you think we should be doing or there's folks you should be reaching out to, let us know. We're constantly looking for new, fresh uh, voices to bring on. Uh, with that, thank you again for listening. And until next time, Vaheguruji ka khalsa, Vaheguruji ki fateh.